Very good. Well done at worshipping Jesus. Be commended. Uh, well, I do want to start with to commend uh, us as a church um, in our uh, generosity. Our giving in March was um, somewhat higher than in uh, January and in February. And as uh, we put out communications um, a couple of weeks ago that um, this is a very needed part of um, our worship expression um, is our ongoing commitment to um, our giving. And I am grateful that we have seen um, across both Sea Change and here at Caring Bar um, a shift in this. Um, and I know that um, that is at times a very difficult thing for us to do. Um, but nonetheless, can I um, commend you and encourage you that our giving is having an impact um, at home, like right here among our church, um, among our young people, among our lives as um, the gospel is proclaimed, as we um, worship Jesus together, as we are about his mission together, um, there is an impact on our giving here. There is also an impact in our giving in our city and what we are um, empowering our church to do more broadly in the community through Kingsway Community Care and through all of our expressions of ministry and mission in the community, be it mainly music through housing um, our homeless. Um, our giving is having a direct impact in our city and more so as well around the world for all of those people who we partner with, be it in Africa or through Open Doors, um, in Cambodia, um, right across the world, our faithful giving is having impacts here and in our city and around the world. And if I can speak just very briefly from the Word of God on this for a moment, um, and Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 8, and he, he encourages to give generously, and he says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. He's, he's talking um, here to the church in Corinth, referencing um, the believers in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance and joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I love, I love the picture that Paul paints of the, the church in Macedonia. I mean, they were, they were knocking the door down, knocking Paul's and the apostles' door down, begging them to be able to take part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected. It kind of caught them by surprise. But what caught them by surprise was they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to them. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he... As he had started, and so he should complete among you this act of grace. And Paul says, but as you excel in everything, as you excel in faith, as you excel in speech, as you excel in knowledge, in all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. To keep excelling in the grace of giving. And I echo Paul's pastoral heart as he goes on to say, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. And so, friends, can I encourage us that our um, giving would be an ongoing expression of our love for God, our expression of our love for His church, an ongoing expression of our love for what He is doing in our midst. 
that there would be a witness of our sincerity of love in the way that we continue to give as a church. So be commended and be encouraged and let's stay the course um, in this grace of giving. Um, Part B to that is a little bit of an update, just a little bit of housekeeping logistics. Um, As we know, there is, you know, we are behind in our giving and um, we're trying to um, come up with different ways that don't just rely on our weekly tithes and offerings to help um, resource what God is doing here. Um, So we hold one, in one hand, we hold faith that God will always provide, um, but we also hold to the hand of being good stewards. Um, And so at the moment, we've been looking at our building here, wondering how could we use our building, which is so big and we have such a, a, a blessing to have the space that we have, Is there a way that we can utilize this space more effectively uh, for a source of income to help us continue um, doing what God has called us to do? The answer to that is yes, and we've wrestled with this for many years and still continue to do so. Um, And so there's a short-term plan afoot that we have at the moment is just the rest of our mezzanine level up here where our offices are and where our um, kids, um, primary school radiate kids meet uh, on a Sunday morning uh, to put that 400 square meters of our mezzanine on the market to be leased out. Um, This is a way for us to be um, of a minimal impact, although some impact that we'll need to work around and be creative with and um, work with our teams and whatnot to be able to um, have our offices somewhere else in the building and for our young people to meet um, on a Sunday morning elsewhere in the building as well. Um, But a way for us to steward this blessing of this facility well, uh, for us to continue to be resourced for God is calling us forward into. Um, and so that's where we're, we're at. We're kind of approached a real estate agent at the moment to throw that section of the mezzanine um, on the market. And so can we pray into that as a, as a church, pray into our giving, pray into our finances and pray that as God has always done, we lease out another part of the building over there to a great tenant. She runs a dance studio over there, that God invariably brings the right people into this space at just the right time uh, to be a blessing to them and to us um, and whatnot. So um, let's pray together to that end. Father, we thank you um, that you have called us uh, to continue the legacy of proclaiming the gospel in this community. Father, a church that has been planted in this community for well over 75 years. Father, committed to the work of seeing your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And Father, we thank you for the mantle that we have now to carry that calling and for us to run with the baton in our hands, the leg that you have called us to run. And Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have poured out in abundance upon us, particularly this building, Lord. Father, we thank you for it and we know you have used it in so many different ways and in different forms over the years. And Father, we pray that as we navigate the future and as we look to um, having other people use our building as well to help us resource, Father, we ask that you would bring in a timely way the right people into this space. Father, this would be an opportunity for us um, to, to be a witness to whoever these people might be. That there could well be, Father, a missional partnership. Father, we pray for that, that there would be people who could be here that we could partner with in your mission. And Father, we pray that in all things that we would trust and put, put our faith in you, Lord. That we would hold things lightly and we would steward everything that you have given us well. Our personal finances, the finances of your church, this building, the asset that we own. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you would use it for your will and we would see you glorified through this process. In Jesus' name, amen. And if you've got any questions around that or any ideas, um, 
please feel free. Or if you yourself are looking for 400 square meters to rent upstairs in our church for a cool 100 grand a year, then um, come and talk to me. (laughs) Or just give me 100 grand. Um, We could do heaps of that. Uh, Very good. Well, open your Bibles. You don't have to go very far this morning, just past the table of contents, um, depending on which one you've got. Might be page two, might be page three, could even be page one if it's fine print. We're going to be in Genesis chapter three. Genesis chapter three. And in case you are new to this God, Jesus, Bible, church thing, uh, let's just do a little bit of catch up. Because there's Genesis 1 and there's Genesis 2. In the beginning, God. In the very beginning, God. The triune God. Present as Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Conspired in word and action to create all things. The entire cosmos. As he spoke, stars took their seat in the skies and... Sun and moon, they burst forth into their blazing glory. Feathery friends of many kinds took flight in the skies. And all manner of things that walk or run or slide or sliver, they occupied terra firma. Swimmy things filled the sea. And lastly, people just like you and me. And God was pretty chuffed with his efforts and he kicked back with a cup of tea looking out off his balcony and he said, how's the serenity? This is all good. Looking out over the vastness of all of the lawns and the gardens, thinking on how on earth was he going to shoulder the burden of all of the chores? Because let's face it, that's a lot of lawn. That's a lot of hedges to take care of. He decided that some caretakers to look after the whole shebang wouldn't go astray. And so he spoke mankind into existence and whooshka, Adam was there. But knowing that Adam would probably forget to put the bins out, that Adam would forget to change the sheets with any kind of regularity, that Adam would probably just live on a steady diet of microwave dinners. God took a look around and at all he created and found that no living thing in all of creation would suffice as a companion and a partner for him. A co-laborer, a helper. Nothing would suffice as the lover that he needed. So God decided to make for Adam a companion. So he caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep and he opened up Adam's side and took out one of Adam's ribs and he got that rib and he breathed life into that rib and Eve was created. Both male and female, he created them. And above all things that he spoke into existence, he was impressed and delighted with none more than the creation of his image bearers of which he sat back and took another long sip of his peppermint tea and said, they are very good. Everything else was just good, but he looked at his image-bearing people, just like you and I. He said, very good. They are very good. You, friend, are very good. (laughs) You are. You're very good. 
Now, the creation story is truly marvelous. Now, in the very first stanza of God's word, the Holy Spirit saw fit that through the pages of Scripture that we come to know a creative, a powerful, a regenerative, an ordered, an organized, a strategic, a beauty-imbued, personal and loving God who created all things, none more blessed or none more essential than people. People, the pinnacle of his creation. He placed them here to enjoy his presence and to be enjoyed by them and for them to enjoy him. He placed people to tend the land and to cultivate the earth, to name all of the fruits and to eat all of the fruits, to name all of the steaks and eat all of the steaks, to thrive in marriage and in relationship with one another, to make passionate love and procreate, to be at peace with each other, to be at peace with creation, to be at peace with the creator himself all while being as naked as jaybirds. Life sans clothes, shamelessly starkers, donning the original human uniform. This was life lived in freedom. You're like, thank goodness times have changed because this could be awkward. They were free in God's all-pervading presence. Free to have dominion over everything God had created and entrusted to them. Free to live within loving limitations. Free to enjoy the plunder and spoils of creation. Free to choose how they would use their freedom which all came to a head when they were faced with a decision. And while confronted with the temptation to eat from the one tree, the one in the middle of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil that God had told them not to eat, lest they surely die. They were confronted with this question, what do we do with our freedom? I mean, they were so free in the garden. They were so free and nude that they didn't even know their nudeness. They were confronted with what to do with their freedom. And we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 3, and it's entitled The Fall. Now when the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, Ah, you won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Doesn't that sound good, Eve? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
She gave also some to her husband who was with her and he ate. I wasn't going to tell this joke, but I will. How do we know that Adam was a Baptist? Only a Baptist could stand next to a naked woman and be tempted by a piece of fruit. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have, should I? Then the eyes, verse 7, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. They knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the fruit of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam said, It wasn't me. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God, turning to all involved, all parties involved, like dad sitting down, all three kids. He addressed each of them one at a time. The Lord God started with the serpent because you have done this. Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and her offspring will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then turning to Eve, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. And all the woman said, Thanks, Eve, for nothing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And then he turns to Adam and he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you that you shall not eat, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it the rest of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field." By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, and the Lord God made Adam and for his wife Eve garments of skins, and he clothed them. Genesis 3 is the recount of sin entering the human story. The moment that in the blink of an eye or um, a bite of a piece of fruit, as it were, the unadulterated freedom in which Adam and Eve enjoyed was gone. It was compromised. They chose to succumb to the temptation before them, choosing to take that which was not intended for them. They compromised the loving boundary that God had bestowed upon them. 
they fell for the insidious trickery of the devil's stealthy and sly beckoning for them to give in to the attractive and to the desirous and to the alluring. You know you want it, even though you're not meant to have it whisper. And within this exchange, we begin to clearly see the impacts of what sin does to humankind's connection with God, what sin does to our connection to creation, what it does to our connection with one another, what that does to our connection with work. Above all, we see what this compromise does to the human heart. Up until this point, Adam and Eve were entirely unhindered. There was nothing that came between each other, nothing that came between them and God. They were totally unawares of the fact of their nakedness was anything but pure, an expression of beauty, of closeness, of openness, of freedom, of intimacy with one another and with God. Though this moment was the moment that that relationship between God and people was compromised by sin and the onslaught of guilt and shame and fear that scarred the landscape of the human heart. I mean, truth is, we can find ourselves in this story without having to get too imaginative. I mean, we know our inherent goodness. We know that our capacity to love and our capacity to create and our capacity to um, enjoy beauty and art and music and to create those things and be enjoy, uh, enjoyers of those things all come from somewhere. You know, and from a faith and biblical worldview and perspective, we know that that is there because of God. As his image bearers, we are aware of our inherent very goodness by virtue of how and who we have been created by but we also know that we're tempted. And if you're not, check your pulse. I mean, any human with a heartbeat has chirping on our shoulder an accuser, an adversary, an enemy that seeks to deceive us and to lie to us and to tell us mistruths to ensnare us in things that hold on to us in life. There is a thug and a thief holding out in front of us shiny things. Holding out in front of us bigger things. Holding out in front of us better things. Dangling before our eyes quick fix things. You know, self-advancing things. Things which we think will resolve the inner conflict between not knowing and knowing. Things that might resolve the inner conflict between not having and having. Resolve things that might resolve how we see ourselves and how we want to be seen. You know, the enemy seeks to tempt us to fill in those gaps with things that ultimately cannot and will not fill them. Not only are we tempted, but in different ways and at different times and for different reasons and different motivations, we fall short of God's standard and go against the grain of his design and intention for our lives. 
I mean, Adam and Eve's response to temptation is to some degree like looking in a mirror. You know, we see them fall for a trap set by what is the one-trick pony. I mean, did God really say? I mean, that's, that's his one trick. That's all he's got. Did God really say just sowing that seed of doubt, causing us to try and obscure our trust in God by saying, did God really say? I mean, they questioned and they doubted. They, in this moment, they lost sight of the completeness of the truth of who they were and who God was. And they disobeyed and we see them descend into, a, into guilt and into shame. Becoming afraid of the consequences of poor choices. Scared of what might befall them or come having dishonored the gift of freedom and life that had been afforded to them by God. I mean, their sin left them not only with the shame of feeling physically exposed, but an exposure that represented a deeper vulnerability, relational and spiritual brokenness with God and with each other and with creation itself. And we see them go into hiding. We see them fashion for themselves outfits of fig leaves to cover their newfound nudeness. And what was true of Adam and Eve is somewhat true of us, that we, like them, can and at times do fall for the one-trick pony who sows doubt and confusion and fear and misplaced desire into our lives. Then how easily do we go into hiding? I know I do. Maybe you don't, but I do. I mean, how easily we go into hiding when we make choices that go against the grain of God's design and intention for our lives. And we can find ourselves like Adam and Eve, fashioning fig leaves to cover ourselves, to cover our shame, to cover the, the feeling of, am I really loved? And I, if anyone really knew the real me, then will they even like me? And so they went busily about stitching together fig leaves and creating bikinis and budgie smugglers out of... I don't know, they wouldn't have lasted very long. I'm assuming they dried out and got pretty scratchy and dead pretty quick and they would have had to go about it again and make some more fig leaves and, you know, there would have been this ongoing creating of hiding. You know, the fig leaves that we retrofit for ourselves are legion. I mean, I wonder what you hide behind. You know, sometimes I'll create fig leaves of busyness. You know, when I become aware of my own brokenness and my proclivity to cave in to the one-trick pony and lose sight of what God has got for me, sometimes I'll fashion an outfit of busyness and I'll rush around and get the, the hurry on thinking that if I just get busy enough, if I look occupied enough, if I walk around the church with a Bible fast enough, I might look like I'm, I don't know. And sometimes we fashion a fig leaf outfit called isolation, where we will withdraw from other people, we withdraw from community, we withdraw from the voices of those who in our lives 
we know to love us deeply and who challenge us and call us to more. You know, sometimes when we feel that sense of guilt and shame rising up, we fashion fig leaves of isolation and we withdraw from one another. And sometimes my fig leaves look like distraction. You know, when I'm feeling a sense of guilt or shame or if I'm doubting, you know, if I'm preparing a word during the week and I feel that voice of doubt rising up in me, you know, that I've told you about it heaps of times, the, Dave, you've really, do you really have anything to say? I mean, who are you to say this anyway? You know, that happens, right? You know, sometimes the fig leaf that then I'll craft is a fig leaf of distraction. You know, I might start dreaming of going fishing. I might get on my phone and do the death scroll. And I'll just distract myself from that thing. That's just a fig leaf going into hiding. You know, sometimes there's self-destructive behaviors and we know what they are in our lives. We use our bodies as scapegoats and we'll inflict some kind of pain upon our own bodies, be it through food or alcohol or otherwise. We can spiral into self-destruction and that is just a fig leaf in which we go into hiding through shame and through guilt. Sometimes it's spending. You know, we just get online and think, you know, I'm just feeling so down right now, I'm just going to go and get some retail therapy going on. Sometimes we hide behind fig leaves that have the appearance of holiness. You know, sometimes we can hide behind religious effort. You know, hiding behind church attendance. You know, I'll just keep coming to church and no one's going to ask any questions. I can just slip in and slip out and it's all good. Or I can hide behind my volunteering or my giving or my doing of good deeds. You know, we have any number of fig leaves hanging in the wardrobes of our lives that at any time we can rifle through them to cover up our failings and our shortcomings and our shame and our guilt. It's like the kid who always wins at hide and seek. We become ninjas at the hiding game. We reach expert level in clothing ourselves with a plethora of metaphorical fig leaves in an effort to hide and disguise our brokenness and the feelings of shame and guilt that come along with that. And I know that maintaining an outfit of busyness is hard work in itself. Hiding in isolation is taxing to our hearts. Being endlessly distracted is tiresome. Living in the land of self-destruct mode is depressing. Constantly acquiring things and spending more and feeding addictions, be they hobbies or the hard drug of choice, these things cost us far more than the dollars and the time and the space than what's listed in the catalogue or on the price tag. They demand and consume and take up so much precious real estate in our hearts and in our minds. And friend, I want you to know this morning that you're not alone. That none of us are immune to hiding from God and each other. We all do it. I do it. We all fashion fig leaves of their various kinds that we hide behind as to not be seen. To shimmy back into the bushes of the garden hoping that maybe just God will pass us by and won't see. We all have our proverbial fig leaves that we use to cover our brokenness. The grace of God, however, is that he is not content for one moment 
to see you and I insufficiently covered. He is not content for us to remain shrouded behind the bushes in his kingdom. He is not content to allow us to fashion for ourselves these insufficient temporary fig leaves which we hide behind. And what we see in the record of scripture here is profound. Profound in the way that God chooses to interact with his people who cave to the temptation before them. Firstly, we see that God came looking for them. How? That's the question I asked of Scripture. How did God come looking for them? Did he come storming into the garden? Did he come in heavy-footed? Did God come in wielding an iron rod to bow down on them with a heavy hand of punishment and scorn? Did he come to them waving his little finger going, tisk, tisk, tisk? I mean, sure, there were consequences to their actions. But before we get there, we see a God who decisively approached his people with love and with grace. He came to them, walking in the cool of the day. And he asked them, hey, where are you? There's a word for that, isn't there? Aika. If you were here for the youth takeover, Aika, where are you? Now, when I was a kid, I knew when I was in trouble by the cadence and the weight of my dad's footsteps. I would go and hide in my room when I'd done something that I know that I shouldn't have done. And I would just wait, knowing that at some point, coming down the flight of stairs, that the footsteps would be heavier and they would be marginally quicker. And it's at that point I knew trouble. <laughs> there was a particularity to the sound and speed at which he traipsed down the stairs and along the hallway where I was hiding from something that I had pulled from the exhaustive catalogue of less than acceptable behaviour. And I heard him coming and I was listening with a keen ear for the depth of trouble that I was about to find myself in. God, though, approached Adam and Eve with a gentleness in his step, with a lightness to his cadence and with deep patience in his stride. He chose the moment of the day that was out of the blaring light, not confronting them in the harshness of the heat of high noon. He came walking gently and graciously in the cool of the day. He came to them in their hiding, using subtlety and nuance in the moment that he chose to find them and to approach them in their hiding. And though we hide... And though we can, in action and in word, dishonor the Lord, God does not use his power of his voice to roar at us with disdain, nor does he use the cadence and weight of his step to incite or to inflame deeper fear in our hearts. He doesn't do it. God does not berate you. He does not demean you. He does not pile more shame on you or add to the burden of guilt. God does not speak in the dialect of fear. 
And someone asked me some, for some pastoral advice the other day. Dave, I'm wrestling with this big decision and you know, I'm just feeling this, this voice of anxiety. Is that God? And I had to eyeball this guy and go, no! God does not speak anxiety into your life. God does not speak fear into your life. He does not know the language of shame, nor does he communicate in the vernacular of guilt. And friend, as we hide uneasily behind the flimsy and fickle fig leaves of our own creation, I want to remind you this morning that God sees you, that he comes to you, that his movement is not away from you, but lovingly and gently and graciously toward you. He chooses gentleness and kindness. He chooses sensitivity and care. He picks his time and his moment and his place with thoughtful consideration of your restoration. That is the kind of God who sees us in our hiding. He is beautiful. He truly is. I mean, what other religion, what other institution, what other little G God is there in the world that in humanity's brokenness would decisively move with such grace and with such love and with such tender, loving care toward those here who wants to restore? Friend, today, if you feel like you are hiding from God, know that God is moving towards you with love and with gentleness and with care, with subtlety and nuance. He knows just what you need and he knows the language that you hear best and he speaks to you and he meets you accordingly. He is a God like no other. After he finds them and he sees them and comes to them in the cool of the day, he addresses all parties involved and he describes the consequences of death and disconnection that had been wrought through their sinful disobedience. And to Eve, he says, from here on out, you and every woman, there'll be pain in childbirth. Marriage is going to be hard work. And to Adam, the ground is cursed. Work is going to be hard and toilsome. I'm sorry to say, but you'll have to eat the broccoli, the taste of death. He did. He said, you have to eat now because of this. You're going to have to eat the, the vegetables. <laughs> mm. Most potently, however, God addresses the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and the dust you shall eat. In the days of your, all the days of your life, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Verse 15 here, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is known as the proto-evangelium. It's a big word, new to me too, by the way, and I was kind of blown away by this. The proto-evangelium. This is the first signpost of the gospel that we see in Scripture. So the offspring of the woman is a clear reference to Jesus, who was born of a woman. And the enmity or hostility and hatred spoken of here is between the enemy and Christ. 
And we know from the Gospels that evil men and demonic forces struck at the heel of the Savior. When Judas and when the Pharisees and when the Romans conspired and to condemn him to be crucified. But his wounding was not the final act. He rose the third day, having paid the price for sin of all who would ever believe in him. The ultimate victory was his, and he crushed the head of the evil one, removing forever his rule over man. The power of Christ would destroy Satan and all of his principalities, all of his powers, confound all of his schemes, put ruin to all of his works, The power of the cross would crush Satan's whole empire, strip him of his authority, particularly his power over death and his tyranny over the bodies and souls of all mankind. This was done by the incarnate Christ when he suffered and died for us. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he crushed the devil's head, defeating him forever. And only two or three pages deep into the Word of God, this proto-evangelium shows us that God always had a plan for our salvation in mind and informed us of his plan as soon as sin entered the world. As it was written in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Since God saw the first people hide, he had a plan brewing. A plan of salvation and redemption. A plan of restoration and renewal. A plan for healing and for wholeness. A plan found in none other than the sacrificial love of Jesus on the cross and his power at work in resurrection. Now, in case this reference, the proto-evangelium, wasn't enough of a preamble to the gospel in Genesis 3... And how about what God does next? In verse 21, God wanders off into the garden after seeing them and seeing them nude and they're like, ooh, don't look at me and they were hiding. And God stands there for a minute and thinks, what am I going to do here? He's kind of laid out the consequences of what is, you know, through their choices. He's like, right, where to? He gets a bit creative and he wanders off into the garden. He takes very careful time to select an animal that he would kill, an animal that would become a sacrifice fitting to cover their nakedness. And he chose not to leave them naked and afraid but to sacrifice his own creation to cover them. He went out and he found an animal and he, it was sacrificed and its blood was spilt and he used its skin to do away with the fig leaves and to give them a different and a new covering. God sacrificed his creation for their covering. And is this not the terrain of the good news of God that we traverse at Easter? That God sent his only son into the world to be the sacrificial lamb. The one whose broken body and whose spilt blood would do away with the fickle fig leaves 
that we use to cover our guilt and our shame, allowing the life of His Son to be taken that you and I would be covered in a different kind of way. God's radical demonstration of love in the garden became their clothing. His grace became their covering. His grace became their covering. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. God has us covered by his grace. God has us covered by his love. God has us covered by his forgiveness. He has us covered in his salvation. He has us covered in his righteousness. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our sin from us. Isaiah 43, 25, he says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins. He has us covered in grace. Now when we hide in shame, he clothes us in salvation. When we hide in guilt, he wraps us in his righteousness. When we hide in Fear, and we go and fashion things to hide that. He drapes us in peace. When we hide in doubt, He comes and He dresses us with confidence. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth. We have redemption. We have a new covering. And friend, if you are like me, who busily gets about the work of finding and creating fig leaves, to hide behind. There is radically good news for people like me who will hide behind busyness and who will hide behind isolation, who will hide behind distraction, who can hide behind self-destructive behaviours, who can hide behind negative thinking, who can hide behind a screen. There is good news for me in the Word of God this morning in that God's decisiveness to give me another covering, a covering of sacrificial love, a covering of a love that nothing else in this world can afford. And today I want us to finish by taking communion. And I want us, on one hand, just to be aware of our proclivity to hide, to be aware of the fig leaves. Yeah, yeah, you know what, God... I've sewn together an outfit that's not fitting, that's not covering me, that's still leaving me pretty exposed, to be honest. If the wind blows hard enough, this fig leaf is going to blow off and everyone's going to see it. Now, to be aware of our fig leaves, 
but more so that we would be so radically aware of the abundance of God's love toward us as he gave himself for our covering. That no longer does he see us or our sin, but we are covered in the righteousness of Christ. And that is good news. And so this morning we take the bread and we take the juice and we are reminded of that sacrificial love. We are reminded that at the very beginning in Genesis 3, when the very first moment of sin entered the world, God already had a plan for salvation. God already had a plan for how our hearts could feel free this morning and not just feel it, but be it. From the very beginning of time, God had a plan through the breaking of his son's body and the spilling of his blood that in this moment that we would do away with the fig leaves and we'd be covered in grace. We'd be covered in love. We'd be covered by him. Father, we thank you that you have made a way for our covering. Father, I pray that we would be released right now from the burden of a fig leaf. Father, we would be released, Lord, from the hard work of fashioning things to hide behind. Father, I ask that you would bring freedom where we feel guilt and where we feel shame. Father, free us as we recognize how much you have given for our freedom. And Father, we thank you for your, your grace. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your gentleness. We thank you for your care. We thank you for your nearness. We thank you that you have made a way. We thank you that since the beginning of time, you had this moment in mind where our hearts would come alive in freedom again at the good news of the gospel. Father, you would give yourselves, yourself for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.